0: Welcome to Living Catholic, the weekly podcast, or actually recently not-so-weekly podcast <laughs> right. from the Diocese of Birmingham. I'm David Anders, the Director of Educational Lifelong Formation. I'm joined today by Max Gallegos, who's a seminarian uh, for our diocese at the Josephinum. He's entering uh, theology studies, originally from Fort Payne, Our Lady of the Valley. Um, also, uh, host of his own podcast, yeah. uh, Logos Podcast, which is about seminary life, and seminary studies. So, right. Max, our podcast is about living the Catholic faith authentically and with joy, with an emphasis on our own Bishop, Bishop Rekha's call for a year of the parish and the Eucharist, thinking mm-hmm. about how we can connect more deeply to the Eucharist into a parish life. So, uh, you're somebody, as a seminarian, uh, that's interesting enough, but with this podcast, you have about seminary life and studies and interests. You've got a listenership around the diocese, and you have an interest in sharing what you're learning. And since this is a podcast about living the Catholic faith in Birmingham, it seemed a good fit to have you on. So welcome
1: to Living Catholic. Well, thank you for having me, Doctor. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's going to be awesome. I hope I hope I can answer some questions you have for me, and I hope um, I represent the seminary and the diocese in a, in a positive manner. Well, we're just going to have fun and have a great Let's conversation. So, okay, so
0: you know, uh, Bishop Call for you're a parish in the Eucharist. We're going to get into that, but yeah. I want to start with... Uh, you tell us about yourself, about your parish life growing up and your vocation to the priesthood. Okay.
1: Um, how can I put this? So I was born and raised in Fort Payne, Alabama. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I come from a family of seven, including my parents. So there's five kids, um, myself being the oldest. And so, yeah, I was born and raised at uh, Fort Payne, uh, Our Lady of the Valley Yep. in Fort Payne, Alabama. So the parish is, uh, parish is largely Hispanic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had, growing up, there was religious sisters there that uh, helped out. And then uh, we got Father Mark Spriel mm-hmm. to help out. And so I had him as my pastor for some time. And then recently, Father Rick Chenault. Yep. Uh, who is there now. And- uh,
0: Okay, so I'm gonna stop
1: you right now. I've already got a question for you. All right. Okay,
0: So you talk about growing up in a largely Hispanic parish. So yeah, I know right. you're of Mexican descent. Um, yeah. you're, you're totally bicultural, bilingual, by everything, right? right? All right, so, um, uh, what is your perspective coming into the seminary, right? You know mm-hmm. that like, we need priests who in our diocese who can right. minister to the Anglo community, the Hispanic mm-hmm. community, and more importantly, who know how to bridge that gap, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so what what is somebody who is obviously extremely comfortable interculturally, right? right. What insight do you think you bring mm-hmm. uh, to the seminary experience and to our diocese and hopefully to our presbyter about living that, uh, what is for many people a challenging vocation in the priesthood?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I was actually talking to some seminarian brothers of mine about this uh, last week, and I think one of the things that I hope to uh, to bring to the, to the diocese and to to some of the you know some of the people I encounter is that in the Hispanic culture, um, the way that we look at the priests and the way we look at just the church in general, um, we look at it. I've noticed with a with a certain level of um, of. Maybe to a fault, even sometimes, but as a as a very very authoritarian, very kind of um, how can I say it? High high church. We, we yeah right. So we we respect everything very very highly in, in the church, and I think that um, one of the things that the Hispanic that I've learned from the Hispanic community um, is particularly how we. As I'm a first-generation Hispanic, right? So my parents came here from Mexico, and yeah. I was born in the U.S. So one of the things that I hope to do is to be able to kind of bring the the American culture and the Mexican culture together, because I've had that experience of being and being immersed in a fully Hispanic culture, and also being a, uh, immersed in a fully um, American culture. Okay, so what does that look and like? So, bringing
0: those cultures together in the context of
1: the church? Well, I think one of the ways we could do that is simply for uh, first generations especially young professionals maybe, to feel connected to a community at the church. To feel that if they need a job, they can reach out to certain parishioners that can provide these jobs or simply to go over to different um, houses, you know, of, of parishioners who have been at these some of these some of the parishes uh, for many years, mm-hmm. you know, because as immigrants, we haven't been established in a community for many years. Um, but first generation, second generation, third and fourth generation, I mean, you're starting to get... Um, more consistent family lines now established in a parish so outreaching to first and second generations to Hispanic I think is a new is a new uh, gap to bridge you know it's uh, there's still a huge population of immigrants coming in but there's also a lot of young professionals that are now being raised that are Hispanic descent and I feel that um, they feel kind of disconnected from the community of the church why um, I think there's different reasons. I think one of the reasons is there's just not much going on in the church for them to get involved in. Mm-hmm. I think even just on a very practical level, I think that they don't feel like um, they can be included into something. I think another thing too is uh, maybe that. Now, at any point, did you feel that way? Uh, I did.
0: Very why? Much, uh, but
1: what was your experience?
0: Why? Why did you
1: feel not connected? Um, I think, well, and and how does
0: this relate to culture as opposed to just age and development?
1: Right. Well, and I think one of the things that, um, I was more fortunate than others in the regards that my parents were very active in the church. Mm -hmm. They were a big part of the charismatic movement for, for several years. Yes. And so I was always at the church Mm -hmm. willingly or unwillingly Right, Right. right? But I was always there. Um, but even then I felt like, um, my friend group and stuff, even the ones that were Catholic, when we would go to school, we wouldn't interconnect about our faith. We wouldn't talk anything about it. It was just on Sundays for that small amount of time, and outside of that, we didn't talk about it. No matter if we played soccer, no matter if we played video games, nothing. It's like we didn't have a connection between our faith and our daily lives. Okay,
0: so I have a question. Right. Yeah. So so uh, did you feel growing up as a, as a Mexican-American that the, the Hispanic side of your identity was uh, connected to the church in a way where your Anglo life was like the non-Catholic part of your life and the Spanish-speaking part of your life was the Catholic part of Very your life? Very much
1: so. And I think that um, unfortunately what happens in enculturation is is if you, one of the things that I see happening is, well, let's leave the Catholic church behind because we're in America now. And In America, it's a Protestant culture. It's a Protestant culture. We don't do the Catholic thing. That's Mexico old news stuff. Kind of the same thing of like, you know, I heard from for many years, many immigrants would tell their parents, um, would tell their kids no don't learn that language don't we leave that language in the homeland learn American you know learn the cultures of America learn the habits and the way Americans dress you know it's kind of like leave that stuff behind and part of the thing that gets left behind is a faith so was
0: your religious education in Spanish or English
1: my religious education was mostly in Spanish. Okay, okay. Um, I think...
0: Now, looking back on it, do you... How do you... I mean, do you think that was... Was that helpful to you? Would it have been better to have it in English or maybe both languages? I, well, or what,
1: what I was going to say is, come confirmation, I was having it in both languages. Okay. And okay. I think that was very helpful. I think it was very, very helpful because at that point, even in just in high school or middle school, I was already... You know, I was going to, uh, to to the public school where the, the language was English. There you know, Spanish. in the
0: church's documents on on the Catholic school, it's interesting. The church says that Catholic schools have a very different uh, job in transmitting the faith than do, say, like parish religious education classes. Mm-hmm. And the parish, you, you're really, the emphasis on catechesis, the basic elements of the faith and the creed, and the sacraments, and the things we all have to know. The school is actually the institution established by the church to help the student bridge between their faith and the, and the culture, right? Mm. And to do that, you actually have to have the language of the culture at your disposal, right? And that could right. be Spanish or English or, or, or both. Right. You know, like for you, culture was a variegated thing, yeah. right? It was right.
1: both English and Spanish. Right, right, and learning how to adjust my, if you will, the religious aspect of, of my life to the cultural aspect of my life was very difficult. I didn't feel like it was much of a connection. Now, it could have been a number of things. You mentioned age. I mean, you know, at 12, 13, 14, 15, you're not really thinking about that, you're not really caring. Lots of kids correct? have trouble connecting right, their right, life, mean,
0: their school life to their to faith their, life. Correct, right. so it's not. Language may exacerbate that problem, but right. it's not unique.
1: Right, but I think there wasn't, it, it felt as if there wasn't much of an access, not even to some of my close friends, for whatever reason, you know. Um, I felt like there wasn't that that connection. Um, but like I said, I was more fortunate than others. So speaking from the experience of of a guy or of a man that's been involved in church most of his life there was a time where i wasn't as involved in the church but um but yeah so i you know i was more fortunate in that regard
0: so let's pick up the thread again with the vocational story so you grow
1: up you're in a church uh, maybe a little bit disconnected from Mm -hmm. your daily life what's next so i get i'm in i'm in high school um i played soccer um i did some football i tried that um, and then, but I did focus on band in high school. So, um, I did, I ended up marching percussion. Yeah. Uh, I was on the drum line for some time. Yeah. And then I went to Jacksonville State University doing that very thing. Okay. I was in okay. Jacksonville State University's, um, marching band and I, I was on the drum line. There. So the drum line are the cool kids, right? The cool kids of the band. Right. I mean, oh, the whatever, cool kids of the w- band. Whatever right. that means, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> whatever that means. So, so yeah, so I was on that and, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, doctor, I mean, it was, it was a great time. I've had a lot of great experiences, you know, I love drum cores. I love the whole, you know, um, indoor drum line. You so still I, play? I still play sometimes for fun. Me and one of my buddies um, from Hoover, actually, he, uh, he, him and I will, will get together and just, you know, do play some drums together and fun. just talk about different. So, but anyway, so I get to Jacksonville, and my faith kind of, if you will, my first journey, or lack thereof, begins in college. Because up to the end of high school, I was still relatively, I was living at home, and at our house, you, at our house, you practice the faith is what you do. Um, Thanks be to my parents' perseverance and loyalty and faith, but when I left home, I didn't really care much for the faith. I didn't. I didn't myself want to do it. So when I got to college, um, I joined the drum line, and I kind of just focused on that. And then I kind of built up a, a social life um, and uh, I joined a Greek fraternity for some time, and uh, and that just comes with its natural um, distinctions, if you will. Yes. You know, and so uh, so yeah. So I was living. Um, a not-so-healthy lifestyle morally, um, even physically, really. Um, but so I kind of I started drifting away from the church. Yes. So for about um, a year and a half, two years, I would say, um, I almost didn't go to church at all. Mm-hmm. You know, I would go on Easter and Christmas maybe if my family yes. was around, you know, the occasional mass. But it wasn't anything to too, too um, yeah, to too practicing. And so there came a time where I felt that... I was, um, on the podcast, on the Logos podcast that I have, I kind of elaborate more on this, but one of the things that I saw happening within my own life is things just weren't, my grades were suffering, right? Because of the social, this kind of party Mm -hmm. lifestyle that I'd built and developed. Um, my, um, my grades weren't doing too well. Um, I wasn't, I didn't have the same relationship with my family as I once did. And that meant a lot to me, that relationship with my family mm, and mm-hmm. who I always spoke so highly about and, you know, who I love so, so dearly still, um, that had kind of in a certain way severed, not completely, but it just wasn't healthy. You know, if I was not visiting the house and going to my parents and I wasn't part some of the part of the big moments with, you know, my siblings and stuff because I was doing my own thing and I didn't like that feeling. And so I, uh, I noticed that I needed some kind of change in my life. And one of the things that I was lacking, and I noticed immediately that I was lack- in, lacking in the most, was discipline, just within my own life, waking up at a decent time, you know, going to classes, doing my work, um, eating right, going back to the gym, these kinds of things. But I also noticed that um, I wasn't, like, nourishing my mind. I wasn't reading anything. I wasn't really trying in my studies. In high school, I did okay, you know, and I didn't have to really try much, or study, you know, outside of the class time. Um, and when I got to college, same thing. I kind of just went through the motions, did okay in my classes. wasn't doing the best, but didn't do didn't do terrible, you know, didn't completely fail out. But um, but I noticed that I was desiring more than just my basics of college. It was just you know, I got a marketing degree. I got a degree in marketing, and I did some computer science stuff as well. And that wasn't all I wanted to do. I wanted more, and I didn't know. What exactly I wanted until one day I walked into, this was closer to the end of my sophomore year in college, um, into a Western Civ class. And um, there's a professor there who I think is Catholic. I never asked him, but I think he was. He was a history professor there. And he starts talking about Aristotle's Four Causes. Now, why he talks about Aristotle's Four Causes in a Western Civ class in a secular university, I don't know. So when I
0: to. taught Western Civ, I talked about Aristotle's right, four causes. Most either guy. Well,
1: most I would I didn't expect that, you know. Yeah. I, I thought I would get But up I
0: was up. I was dangerously close to becoming a Catholic at that point, well, there too, we Yeah. You know, uh, yeah.
1: Well, yeah, if you're talking about Aristotle's four causes, you're you're, you're pretty close. Um, but I get there You know
0: Alice von Hildebrand, just to cut you yes. off for a second. Yes. All right, have you have you read her book <clears throat> The Um Art of Living? Uh, no, no, it's oh. uh um oh, it's it's her memoir about basically like oh, her sorry. her failed academic life, oh, you know. No. Uh, um uh I can't think of the title, okay. but it's all about how she was a failed academic because she never achieved like, no, the kind of notoriety that you uh-huh, would, yeah. and it was her Catholic faith that held her back because her colleagues basically marginalized her because they knew she was devout, but mm-hmm. one of the reasons they did that is she taught ancient philosophy, and all she did was teach Plato and Aristotle, wow. and she never introduced Catholicism, she didn't introduce you know, Christian theism, right. and she wasn't proselytizing, but just unfolding the riches of Plato's philosophy, inevitably she had a lot of kids become Catholic every year. So the faculty was convinced she was in there (laughs) proselytizing, (laughs) but she was just getting them to read the Republic.
1: Yeah, well, there we go. go. Yeah, metaphysics and the physics. I mean, those great texts um, in Western civilization and of the church, too. All right,
0: so you learn about this stuff, and it turns you on.
1: And it turned me on. And and it sparked something in me that I didn't at least consciously... Memoir of a Happy Failure.
0: That was the name of the book. Memoir of a Happy Failure. Yeah, all right, go ahead. For everybody.
1: For myself, too. I'll I'll write it down. But um, I was in class, and... It sparked something in me. And all this time, see, from a very young age, I always had an artistic aspect to me. I loved uh, computers, I loved art, I loved music. And as you see, in, in middle school and in band, I was involved in music, and I get to college and I'm still in music, and I, and, or, and I, you know, I love music, and um, I become the social chair of the fraternity, so I'm, I'm orchestrating the stuff and making it look good and you know choosing the music and all this stuff. And um, not, a, not the happiest accomplishment of my life, but I always had that artistic desire. Mm -hmm. I always did. Um, um, I love poetry, and and I picked up reading. So when I was in that classroom, I was like, I want more of this. Whatever, I don't know what this is. It was philosophy, of course. I want more of this. Whatever this is, I want more of. Because this is much more purposeful and meaningful than anything that up to that point in my academic life, I had done. And so it sparked and ignited an intellectual conversion because all of a sudden I called my brother after class.
0: um, Now, I I completely relate to you 100%, okay? But I know there are a lot of people, I mean, members of my own family, in fact, that if I said, you know, what really turned me on in life, (laughs) I need more of this, I need meaning, right, (laughs) is some Greek that lived 2,300 years ago who wrote about, like, you know, Mm -hmm. the metaphysics of causation. So you want to give me, like, two seconds on... So how could something so seemingly abstract mm. fire your imagination and right. propel your life forward? I, I get it, but, yeah. but put that in words for the non-philosopher okay. out there.
1: So one of the ways that, one of the reasons I guess I connected immediately with that is because I remembered at my parish priests back home in Fort Payne, I remember seeing Aristotle on his library. Mm-hmm. He had several other texts. He had, he, he had a, huge library. It was nice, nice library. And I remember seeing that book specifically from a young age. And there was something in him teaching that to me that connected me back with my faith almost instantly. Just simple, something as simple as knowing that book. It was really the grace of God. But, um, so it kind of, okay. So
0: you, you, you were, somebody explained Aristotle in a, to you in a way where you saw this man had insight and wisdom, right? And you had some personal connections and memories that said, my faith embraces this.
1: Yeah, my faith embraces and this. Yeah. This
0: connects back this to, connects my, back. to, my, to yeah. my faith. Okay, now that makes a lot of yeah, sense. And who I am, Yeah.
1: you know, as yeah. a beloved child of Jesus Christ. And, and I think, you now, know, the church says in, this, in, in that it is, in, to the measure that it is good, true, and beautiful in there lies Christ.
0: Okay. And okay. I think
1: that when I experienced such a, I, you know, even now that I think back, pretty basic philosophical kind of outlining, or, um, grounding, I was so drawn to that because I was like, wow, this is – where's where's this been all my life, you know? Um, and I don't know. I just –
0: I know you're into Augustine, and, you know, Augustine had yeah. a period in his life when he picked up the Hortensius by Cicero mm-hmm. and had a similar sort of yeah. f- philosophical awakening into the yeah. pursuit of truth and beauty, and it didn't lead him immediately to the Catholic faith, but it started him on the trajectory that led him ultimately yeah. into Catholicism. Now, yeah. there was something else. I know I listened to your vocation story in your podcast, and you mentioned um, – you know, a friend kind of called you to yourself, mm-hmm. right? You want to mm-hmm. say something about that?
1: Yeah, so he just um, he just challenged me. It wasn't nothing big. You know, it was just very simply kind of like, what are you doing, man? You know, what are you doing kind of thing? And I, I remember we were talking about something. I can't remember exactly what, but we were talking about something, and he had mentioned that, um, you know, he, that, yeah, just like I, I said, I made a comment or something or I was saying something about something, and he goes, well, what are you doing? Kind of thing, you know. What are you doing? Why don't you, uh, you know? He 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 would he would come to my my dorm room, or I guess my room at the fraternity house, and he would knock on my door sometimes and ask me to mass, you know. And uh, and I wasn't going to mass at the time. And then during my kind of my reconversion, he stopped going. And but like before then, it was kind of him that kind of made me think maybe I need to go back to church, maybe I need to live out my faith a little more, maybe I need to uh, try to just fix you know discipline my life a little bit more and so it wasn't you know that big of a deal but it was just a simple kind of question what are you doing to me was a big deal because i didn't have a community of people that were challenging me or propelling me to move forward in my life and to not settle for you know the obstacles that that were hindering me at that point
0: okay so that's that's important okay so so you get you have a friend challenge you Mm -hmm. uh you get turned on
1: to philosophy uh Mm -hmm. what's next so I get turned on to philosophy, and then I call my brother. Okay. And I call my brother, and my brother and sister both went to uh, St. Bernard Preparatory School. Yep. And um, so it's ran by Benedictine monks. Yep. And uh, the reason I call my brother is because I know he had had exposure to philosophy and some theology in his studies um, as, a, as a high schooler. So I was like, well, I don't know much, but I do know that he is an ancient philosopher. And my brother has studied philosophy. So there we go again. It makes another connection with somebody that I love, which is yes. my brother. Yes. And so I call my brother. I'm like, look, man, we read this in class. I don't know what's happening. I want more of this. Do you think I should pick him up? Is there somebody else you recommend? What do you think I should do about this? It's funny because he was, at the time, a 15-year-old, about to be a 16-year-old. This is, you know, and So I'm, he was still at St. Bernard. He was still at St. at the time. And I call him, and he he basically tells me, no, you don't pick him up. You wouldn't understand him. It's basically, it, it basically the gist of what he was telling me. But what he really said is, I don't think you need to read him until you have, um, until you read other texts that are not just strictly philosophical. That I think that would give you a better rounding um, of theology and philosophy kind of mixed together. Uh-huh. And so he, um, he said, but I got a soccer game. I'll call you later. I was like, all right, cool. So he called me back and he said, hey, I got a recommendation for you, the Confessions by St. Augustine.
0: Best thing he could have suggested I, to and,
1: you. And well, later on, I found out that actually it came from a monk that told him
0: to yes. tell me. Best thing right. you could
1: have suggested. So right, and so um, I was like, "All right, cool." And then I saw the book, and I think it's pretty big. And I was like, "I I don't know if I can handle this, you know, brother. I you know I haven't read a book in in many years, and I nothing like this." I jokingly say the last book I had read before the Confessions was a Junie B. Jones. You've heard of these books, ha! yeah? Ha! So I jokingly say that, um, you know. So anyway, so I, I pick up this text, and um, and man, the conversion really began. It's like Saint Augustine knew the depths of my heart, and he knew my desire. And I didn't even know my desire. And so Christ used him in a very intimate way. Because the thing I wanted most when I was reading that text, there's many, many parts of that book that stood out with me, and I've read it multiple times since. But the thing that impressed me most was the way his relationship, his level of intimacy with Christ. All my life I had heard Christ, you know, Christ is, uh, God is Father, your adopted son, You know, Jesus Christ wants you to be close to him, wants you to love him. He wants to love you. But it didn't, I didn't know what that kind of meant. But this, this book, the way he was writing was so honest that it drew me into the depths of even his own heart, I would say. It kind of showed me that, that it's possible to have an intimacy with Christ that is beyond anything I'd experienced in my life before. You know, even with former relationships with 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 girlfriends that I had, or, or even even with my own parents, you know, um, I, in in that in the, that text, like his level of sincerity, of honesty, of wrestling with himself, was on full display, and it was one of the greatest texts, one of the greatest texts in Western civilization, and so when I read that book, I just I love the sincerity, and the and you know now that I know it's it's a book written in the form of a prayer, it's basically one huge prayer, mm-hmm. and. And so I started uh, picking up that book and I started, that book slowly took me to kind of pray on my own. I would read a few chapters, or a chapter and just kind of sit, think about it, meditate a little bit, pray a little bit. And then eventually it took me even to the chapel, the moment of silence. Oh, you're nearly giving me goosebumps here. You know, I mean, I'm this is good it, stuff. It just, it moved me you know, to, the, to the chapel and there was our blessed Lord. And a lot of the things he was wrestling with, I was wrestling with almost at the same time, you know, I was like, God, what about this? And. You know, kind of angry, and God, show me. You, you know, I. It really was. It, it was. It was. It, I would say it was a very sincere dialogue between God and I. Those times I was going to the chapels, it was a very moment of growing in intimacy with Christ. And I didn't even know it. I thought I was going there to f- argue with God and to fight with Him, but I wasn't. I was actually growing with Him. It reminds me of a story I once heard of a of a nun who uh, was taking care of some patients at a hospital, and well, the husband passes away of this couple, and the woman leaves, and she's She's mad at God and she's, you know, she's, she's frustrated that God would take her husband. Well, she goes out to the statue of Jesus and starts punching it, punching it, punching it, spitting on it. And one of the security guards is running at her to stop her. And the nun, the nun tells the guard, no, she's praying. Yes. You know, yes. And it was that kind of, that kind of imagery.
0: You know, my favorite Psalm now is Psalm 88.
1: Oh yeah?
0: And the reason why is Psalm 88 yeah. is the most despairing, hateful psalm in the entire Psalter, and the guy, the psalmist says, God, you've taken away all my friends, your terror washes over me, and my one companion is darkness. Hmm. Amen. That's it. It's just a complaint. But what makes that so wonderful to me is it's articulated as a prayer, right? Rather than walking away from the faith... The, the the psalmist just rails at God, hmm. you know, because he – that's where he's going to find the resolution to his
1: problem, right? right? Well, and it's, so it's yeah.
0: canonized, it's inspired, and it goes into the canon of the Bible yeah. to say this is a
1: valid way yeah. of engaging. You know, Israel means he wrestles with God. Wrestling with God, you know? right. Yeah, and you know, it's one, one of the first acts of prayer, right? Vulnerability. That's a great story though about the Yeah. The non Lettner beat up though. That's kind of the way I, of I can think about it in my head because that's what's what happening. That's great. You know? um, and so anyway, so that happens and I start and so anyway, so, so the parish priest comes into my life at that time. Father Jim Handerhan. Great example of a man, great example of a priest. He was a short lived priest, he didn't live as priesthood too long. I think it was three, maybe four years, but I think it was three years. And so basically, you know, those two or three years he was at Jacksonville, St. Charles, um, I was there. So he was basically there when I was there. And so he notices that I'm going to the chapel by myself and I'm praying the rosary by myself and I'm walking around the church sometimes and going through the little library that they had at the church. I asked him if I could go through it and pick out a couple of books, you know. He starts noticing that I'm sticking around and I'm actually going um, to some events and stuff. Well, he, you know, he says, hey, Max, why don't you and I meet personally? Maybe, Maybe once a month, you know, maybe twice a month if you want. I'm like... All right, why not? What do I have to lose? You know, what do I have to lose? I'm, I'm not doing much else. You know, um, some of my friends are noticing my reconversion. Some love it, some hate it. You yeah, know, it's kind of how yeah. it happens. You know, some are growing closer to me, and some I'm sure have their have their maybe even rightful judgments of me, right? And so, but so I needed a friend. I needed somebody to guide me, and I I knew the priest could do that, because right? the priest was a big part of my family's life. The big the priest was a big big part of uh, of many people's lives that I knew that. That he had impacted the priesthood, his um, word, Jesus Christ, and uh, oftentimes shows his love and mercy for the people of God. And so I was like, maybe the priest can help me in some way, you know, at the very least, I can tell him why I doubt, you know, God would love me or could mm, love me. Mm. And so I started meeting with him, and so he became my vis a vis spiritual director, mm-hmm. kind of. Mm-hmm. And so for about a year, he was, this was constant. So this was my junior year, he was you know, involved a lot of my life, and I started attending Mass regularly, and I was trying to fix some of my, um, you know, former habits and stuff, um, trying to, you know, rescue some friendships and letting some go. That's part of the reconversion, too, you know? And so so that started happening, and slowly my life began to kind of turn around, and I wanted to go to church. I wanted to read. I wanted to pray. I wanted to pray my rosary, but I always had this desire Ever since I was a young kid, I was motivated by the desire to um, bring people to Christ. And I didn't even know it. See, because from a young age, one of the reasons I was driven to the artistic aspect is to show people the beauty of God. And I didn't even know it. I I didn't even know it. But when I got to the university, one of the reasons I chose a marketing major, well, actually, I started as a computer science major. And I started as a computer science major in order that I can develop church websites, like, that was literally my huh. driving force. I was like, I wanted, I wanted better, you know, church websites and, and design graphics and help out, you know, uh, the parishes in our local diocese. Um, but then it sh- switched to marketing. Well, the reason I switched to marketing is because I wanted to some, somehow outreach. I wanted a, to evangelize, right? That was uh-huh. really my driving force. What did I want to market? I wanted to sell um, the church, if you will, to the people of God in a certain way, you know, and to the to people who don't know God. And so... I always had this desire. And so when I started meeting with my spiritual director, Father Jim Handerhan, they started kind of coming out. Because my relationship with Christ didn't stay there. I've noticed that I didn't just want to go and pray, I wanted to live this out. You know, I had this zeal in me building up, and I wanted to show people about it. I wanted to express to people the message of God how wonderful the sacraments are, how wonderful for the sacrament of confession is it's not a burden. It's not, right, a hindrance to your freedom. It's an act of love. It's established for love, you know, by love. And so um, so I, I had this desire to express, and I wanted to bring people to now the Blessed Sacrament, right? They expose Blessed Sacrament to adoration and show my friends that, um, show them the message that I have, I have encountered Christ in a way that's profoundly, you know, reshaping who I am, reshaped who I am and how I think and how I want to live my life. Um, And sure, I've had my failures. I am no perfect man. I I, I will, you know, admit that to anybody. But I think that as Father Jim was helping me, um, teaching me to really pray, just even the basics of the spiritual life, go to Mass again. (laughs) You know, very simply, wake up on time, Max. Make sure you're exercising. You know, hey, I need your help in the lawn this weekend. Can you come help me? Sure, Father, kind of thing. Um, I started experiencing the love of God in a very ordinary way, if you will. I didn't have to have some crazy experience, extraordinary experience, I started recognizing God in the little things of life. Um, and so he asked me at the end, closer to the end of my my junior year, I think it was mid-junior year, if I'd consider the priesthood. And I said, absolutely not. Thank you. Next time, maybe. Um, but I couldn't help but bring it to prayer. I was like, huh, what was that question about God? I don't even know what that's about. Anyways. So anyways, I got this uh, girl that I want to talk to. You know, anyways, in my <laughs> prayers, right? This is me talking in prayers. And it just, it would not leave. I would go to mass and I would go, and I was like, man, what, what is going on here? So I went to a diocesan seminary event um, and I came back home. I wasn't at peace with it at all. So I was like, maybe this, you know, this priesthood thing isn't for me. So then I went to the father. like, Max, pray about it. Don't make your decision based off of one event. Keep praying about it, you know. See what God wants for your life. So then I was invited to uh, live in at the Pontifical College Josephinum, And I stayed there for a weekend, and it was one of the best decisions I've ever done in my life. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I don't. It could have been the institution itself, but I think what I noticed in that stay was that um, the presence of God, that desire that I'd had to 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 want to teach people about God and to, to want to bring people to God, it really kind of starts here. It's one of my first times, and I don't want to limit it strictly to this, but it was one of the first times in my life that I experienced a very beautiful liturgy. I literally had never, up to that point, experienced like, like a really beautiful liturgy. Hmm. And um, that was the first time I did. And I was, I was as a jokingly say, I was shooketh. Shooketh. Sure, okay. I was shooketh <laughs> to the core. You know, I was, I was, I was really moved. I was beautiful uh, all around. And um, I couldn't help but think, God, is this a place for me? And I remember that night, I was praying at midnight at one of the side chapels, or one of the chapels they have, smaller chapels, um, St. Rose of Lima Chapel and um i was doing my holy hour at the chapel and i said i told god i wanted to go in the middle of the night and just sit with him and the overwhelming peace that i got in that place was just i can't describe it doctor it was just i was like i need to be here so is this that's that's when you made the decision and that's when I'm, i made a decision I'm, I'm well that's when i made a decision i need to consider this decision okay. seriously and it's okay. still a few weeks before i decided but i mean that's where it really that's, yeah, that's, where where, that's where the seed was really planted. I, and I remember okay. the exact moment. So
0: I want to back up now and I want to recapitulate. Okay. Right?
1: Because it seems to me that
0: you had a number of elements that converged to yeah. nurture you in your sense of vocation. Sure. I mean, I, I was taking some notes and I said practically a tsunami of positive forces right? <laughs> that were going converging on yeah. your life. And, um, and while uh, these were important in your vocation in the priesthood, these same elements, I think, are crucial really to cultivating any vocation, mm. right? So, and here they are, right? This is the way I see what you just told me. So number one, you had something of a kind of a personal meaning crisis, uh, an emptiness, a hollowness yeah, that you absolutely. needed to fill, and restlessness. You, were, you were restlessness, and you were mm-hmm. you know kind of tempted to run on, off down some bad roads like we all are. Right? Mm-hmm. You had a friend who challenged you to live more authentically. Sure. Right. You had your family was a source of real support and encouragement. Mm-hmm. You had an intellectual conversion first to philosophy, sure. then to Augustine. You began spending time in the chapel in front of the Blessed Sacrament in Prayer, and you had a a really powerful experience of pastoral accompaniment from a priest who encouraged your Mm. spiritual life and your vocation. Right. Mm -hmm. So this this question occurs to me. What would you say to this? Your job as a priest Mm. is going to be to cultivate and nurture each of these distinct elements in your parishioners to help them live their vocations. What do you think about that
1: as a challenge? Well, I think that we encounter Christ in many different ways, and I sure did in my own, you know, tsunami of experiences. Sure. You know. Um, and I'm you know, I'm still twenty four years old, so I'm sure I'm gonna encounter Christ in many more experiences. And I think that um, we need to be able to allow God willing, you know, if God does will me to be a priest and, and I do become a priest, I, I hope to enable people to meet Christ in any setting that they're in. It's so one of the reasons that I, I look up to Jose Maria Scriba, saying yes. Jose Maria Scriba, yeah. because he recognizes that we experience Christ in the ordinariness of existence. And I think that um, oftentimes we limit ourselves, honestly, to want to experience Christ in this huge, big, you know, revelation. But oftentimes that's not how God works, right? Oftentimes God um, God works, where we say grace perfects nature, right? And so we oftentimes um, move beyond like the natural as if we don't want anything to do with this. We're Christian, we're beyond this. We're Catholic, we're beyond this, you know? I hope to, in in the little ways I can, and accompany people. I oftentimes think, like, accompany people at the high school graduation, accompany people at their soccer football, or their soccer game, or football game, or accompany people um, in a moment of death and sorrow, accompanying people at, you know, whatever recital, or whatever dinner, you know? Because I think people need the example of Christ in their own lives, and I think that the priest can bring that in different scenarios.
0: You know, the reason I put the question the way I did is that I'm a, I'm a student of Pope Francis. Mm-hmm. I've read Evangelii Gaudium many times. I've studied yeah. elements over, over and over again. I think he has a lot of insight. And almost every one of the things that you said brought you to vocation yeah. is something that the Pope points out specifically as these are mm-hmm. distinct elements and living the vocation to, to missionary discipleship. He talks mm-hmm. about, of course, the role of accompaniment yeah. is just so dear right. to the mind of the Pope, right? Mm-hmm. You have to actually walk with people, be with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talks about, Developing a contemplative and a prayer life and one's relationship with Christ. Mm-hmm. He talks about the challenge of a kind of apologetics that would engage faith and reason in a dialogue. You know, he talks right. about um, the support of families. Um, and clearly, you know, the whole exhortation that he writes is about the challenge to live a more more authentic Catholic existence yeah. and more true to ourselves. So I'm gonna I'm gonna share a passage from Pope Francis and see if you would comment on this for me okay. in light of that conversation. Okay. Yeah. Pope, the context of the remark is he says that there are people that are being drawn away from the church, and sometimes to more pathological forms of religion or ideology, right? Mm-hmm. And he he identifies a problem of baptized people who lack a sense of belonging to the church, and he says sometimes this is due to certain structures and occasionally an unwelcoming atmosphere of some of our parishes or communities, or a bureaucratic way of dealing with problems, be they simple or complex. In many places, an administrative approach prevails over a pastoral approach, as does a concentration on administering the sacraments apart from other forms of evangelization.
1: Hmm. I mean, can I really add to the quote of a Pope? You know, kind of thing. I mean, yeah. I mean, I really don't have much to say to that. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I think, I think. Over- is, that's
0: not your experience. Mm. What he describes is not your experience, yeah. right? Yeah. But I can see how. If that was someone's experience, think about all the elements of your own vocation yeah. that would have been lacking. You know, yeah. if someone hadn't been there to accompany you, yeah. if you hadn't had your your intellect challenged, yeah. right, in a classroom, right, right, yeah. If you hadn't had a friend to admonish you, mm.
1: um, yeah. I think, well, I think we we know that community is important. Okay, I mean, the Trinitarian relationship is in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right, and so that's how we kind of we work we work with people and. Um, to love Christ is to love other people, and and I think um, love also love is yes, but love also can sometimes mean no. You know what I mean? Yes. It comes with acceptance, but also it comes with denials and rejection sometimes. And I think that I, I recently listened to um, to an interview with uh, Bishop Barron and uh, Jordan Peterson. Dr. Jordan Peterson?
0: Uh, I've listened to both of those. Okay. The second one was great. The first
1: one, not so great. Okay. So one of the things that was asked, and I think it was actually asked in both of them, was um, asked from Bishop Barron to Dr. Peterson, what is one thing you think the church could do better about? And I think the answer was, I don't think you challenge your people enough. I don't think you challenge your people enough. Um, basically stating that if if the gospel is true, If Jesus Christ is real, then the demands on your people should be much grander than what they are. Should be Mm. much larger to Mm. what they are. And it's true, right? Christ came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And I think that one of the reasons maybe I experienced life in all these aspects is because that was who I that's where I was, that's who I am in a lot of ways, and and that because of because of those experiences I encountered Christ and life became has become more abundantly. Through those ways, and I think that um, that challenging people kind of helps foster that. It, it helps um, helps draw people to to what they're called to. Right? We're not called to settle for going to purgatory. We're called to be saints. Right. You know, and and we're called to be saints and and to love um, anything and everything that we do. And it's very difficult. That's why prayer is so important. You know, um, that's why grace is so important. Because it kind of keeps us, it propels us forward in trying to, in, you know, live and encounter Christ. And, Amen. You know.
0: So I'm going to pivot to something else briefly Hate for it. a minute. All right. So, so, you know, it wasn't the only element, but being in a secular university in a Western civ class <laughs> was an occasion for you to encounter the Catholic it faith. It was. It you know, was one. Ironically, I think my first intellectual encounter with Catholicism was in high school. Yeah. I was in a secular high school, there were n- no Catholic presence that I'm aware of. Yeah. I was in a class where there was certainly no love for the Catholic Church mm-hmm. in the class. And I read a book that is not favorable towards Catholicism, it's The Portrait of an Artist of the Young Man by James Joyce, okay. right? Yeah, so I, I mean, Joyce is an apostate, he left the church, right? Okay. But he knew it well. Mm-hmm. And there was a disparaging description of the Catholic priesthood in, mm-hmm. in the book where uh, a, a priest character challenges the protagonist, Stephen Dedalus, to consider a vocation to the priesthood, us. right? And, and his motive is really ugly, right? Mm-hmm. It's the power that he would have over people because of mm-hmm. his ability to confect the Eucharist, mm-hmm. right? And so it's a, you know, Jay, Joyce's perspective on that is that this is a manipulative and kind of exploitive reason mm-hmm. to want to be called the priesthood. But as a young Protestant kid reading this book, it was the first time I ever really confronted how amazing the doctrine of the real presence was, wow. you know? And so, like, Sounds you know, like no. Joyce's attitude was not at all favorable to no. Catholicism, you know? But when I read that, I went, he's right. If a priest if, really has the yeah. power to confect the Eucharist, and that really is the body and blood of Christ, what an amazing thing <laughs> that would be. Yeah. I I encountered the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist as a, as a like, Existentially overpowering idea for the yeah. first time in yeah. a deeply anti-Catholic novel in an anti-Catholic context, and I it, and I saw it as something like challenging and to yeah. be considered. You know, yeah. um, I know that. Uh, so the classroom, I, the point of this is that the classroom and encountering Catholic culture mm-hmm. is a point of contact yeah. for many people. Some of us, the first time ever, yeah. with this magnificent thing called the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. right? I know that something you're doing now, you know, yeah. in your summer studies as a seminarian is you're trying to bring something of Catholic culture, yeah. uh, to the parishes that you're working in. Mm-hmm. And obviously this is an important part of your self-conception, what you have to offer right. You want to talk to us a little bit about what you're doing in like adult ed in your okay, parish? Okay. And- yeah.
1: So, so w- recently in my life, I've, I've picked up, uh, well not that recent I guess. One of the, one of the philosophers that's been most influential, um, in my philosophical formation, if you will, has been uh, Joseph Pieper. Yeah. Right? German philosopher. I like Joseph Pieper. Joseph Pieper's a man. He um, actually some of his books weren't even released, well at least translated into English that you know, that even that long ago. I think it was like the early nineties uh, even. Yeah. But uh, one of the books that I've heavily relied on um has been leisure the basis of culture yes that's a great book you know you're talking we're talking about culture we're talking about community you know and it's and it's provocative even even of the title itself another book that i have been really focusing on and and just in general um has has been part of like my spiritual development or uh, attempt at a spiritual development is um the The noonday devil yes by um brother i guess it would be or father jean charles nalt and uh, the book focuses on um, Acedia. Right?
0: Yes. Right. You want to define that
1: for people? Acedia, yeah, so sloth, right? So Acedia is the Latin word for um, sloth. And Acadia is where it comes from in the Greek version. So mm-hmm. Acadia, uh-huh. you know, whatever. Okay. Um, so these two, because these two books in my, um, I've, I've really, they've really been helpful in a lot of ways in my spiritual life and even my, like I said, philosophical formation. I, they kind of came organically. When I got to the parish this summer, um, I've always had this desire, as I stated earlier, to kind of bring people to this encounter with how beautiful the church is, the tradition of the church, both, um, you know, like, like her intellectual aspect as well as her spiritual and her, you know, her practicality even in our daily lives. And, um, so I asked, Father, you know, Father, what would you like me to do at the parish? And he said, well, you know, this and that. And I was like, well, Father, you know, what do you think about some talks? Could I give some talks maybe that help me? It's not a homily because I'm not there yet. But it's also, it's stuff that I love. It's stuff that I enjoy. And I'm, and I've, I'm reading a significant amount. I'm getting tired of just, uh, just keeping it to myself. You got to talk about it. I got to do it. You You I got to, you know, yeah. Crank up a podcast. Yeah. And so one of the first things that's actually really interesting when I entered uh, the rectory, I, you know, I told him what was one of my favorite philosophers when we were just in conversation, father and I, and he's, and I was like, yeah, Joseph Pieper, he goes, let me show you something. He opened up one his cabinet and he had Sarah just a people book. He's like, I love just a people too. I'm like, oh, we're gonna get along. This is great. So, anyways, so and you know, we start talking about. And one of the things he proposed, because I think he himself noticed the importance of this book, the Noonday Devil. He's like, why don't you give a talk on ascidia, what it means, some of its implications, how it's how it's affecting us, maybe the origin, you know, of this of this capital sin. Um, and so I, I gave a talk a few weeks uh, ago on that. You can go on the podcast at Logos. Um, on Apple, Google, and Spotify, if you want to check that out. But I gave a talk on that, kind of showing people some of the intellectual tradition of the church and some of the spiritual um, implications of this. Okay, so briefly, and yeah. I, I don't want to get
0: too far off the field here, but okay. but um, uh, hey, Max. Okay. I'm not hurting anybody.
1: Ah, okay.
0: Right. How can Exadia be, how can sloth be a capital sin? Because, like, I'm not hurting anybody. Right. I'm just,
1: I'm just. I'm just playing Xbox, man. Okay. So I'll give you three definitions of acedia really quickly. All right. One is a sorrow for a spiritual good. Okay. Okay. That's St. Thomas Aquinas' definition. Another one is uh, a lack of desire. Okay. And the third one that I gave was um, disgust with activity. So for the first one, sorrow about a spiritual good or for a spiritual good. You may not be hurting anyone, but you're hurting yourself. Bingo. Okay, spiritual depression—that's what I would what I would call it. You're hurting yourself. You're damaging yourself slowly. Um, You're not. Hey, I don't have a right to hurt myself. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Well, in in the the true sense of the term, no. You know, you're right. Okay. I don't. And so the second definition I gave was was it was um, what was it? Let's see. Um, A lack of of desire. Lack of of desire. Lack of care. Okay. This actually does affect other people. Because the way you live and the way you live um, life impacts other people, and so if you don't actually care about existence, if you don't care about the things you do, then you actually do impact other people because other people look up to you in a lot of ways, whether you know it or not. You either have family members that look up to you, you have coworkers, uh, you know friends look up to you. And so when you don't have a care in what you do, they also aren't called to be who they are, yeah, that's right, you know, so they're they're having to settle for um, a lower form of dignity than they're given. They're much more, they're, they're made in the image and likeness of Christ. Right. And so again, I go back to the Christ came that we might have life abundantly and we don't care about what you do. You're not actually embracing that truth. Beautiful.
0: Beautiful. Christ calls us to be a light bulb,
1: right? Not, not a rock or an island, you know, a la Paul Simon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So a lack of desire. And lastly, um, with activity. You actually are hurting people yeah. when you when you hate. Because what starts to happen with a CD is it infests your life in such a way that you judge everybody else's activity and you yourself don't do anything because you're so busy judging other people's activity. Mm, what a great point. You know what What I mean? a great point, yeah. So like, yeah. you actually are affecting other people because not only are you judging their movement, the people who are around you are hearing you judge them and so they want to judge that person or this activity or this event or this whatever. So you are actually... Directly and indirectly affecting other persons' life. Fantastic. So I would say, summatively, those those would be three of my responses.
0: Awesome. Well, Max, yeah. we have uh, we, we are we are not slow to do good activity in this podcast. In <laughs> fact, <laughs> I, I think we've been going forty five minutes, That's and uh, it's probably taxing most people's patience at yeah, this point. Well, so I think I, we I might shut it down. It. down but Sounds this good, is great, right. and I look, we're all excited for Thank your you. vocation and for your priesthood, and I hope you'll give us many many more talks about Exadia and Joseph Paper <laughs> and, and Joseph. everything else that you're learning Thanks, and. Man. Uh, and uh, and keep on doing that accompaniment and uh, God bless you. Yeah, thank you, Doctor. So thanks for being with us. So yeah. again, this it's a Living Catholic podcast that the Diocese of Birmingham. You can tune in every week, and I think we're going to try to crank back up into the weekly podcast. Let's on do it Thursday. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you can recommend us on on uh, all the your various podcast apps that you look and <laughs> yeah. you listen to. Give us a thumbs up or a positive or a like or I whatever like, yeah. it is, you know, and cool. and pass it around to your friends. Thank you. So thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you.